Uh, hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ, uh, along with my co-host Teresa Quinlan. Uh, I'm Rhys Thomas, so we make up the TNT. We are here to explode the status quo. This series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently so we can start doing differently. Our guest today is the amazing Morgan Michael, creator of the research-based not-for-profit Small Act Big Impact 21 Day Kindness Initiative. She's also the host and producer of the Kindsight 101 podcast. Morgan is the mother of two young children, a wife, speaker, educator, author, and she believes that infusing intentional kindness and empathy into schools, workplaces, communities can be the catalyst for positive change. Welcome, Morgan. We're so grateful to have you joining us today. Thank you so much, Reese. What an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> funny pleasure. All those things kind of lined up by someone else. I'm usually the one who introduces, so it's nice to be here with you both. Thank you. Well, it's good to have so much material to work with. Yeah, so there's plenty of stuff we could say. As we usually do, we kick off with a question. So we call it your obsession. So it's obsession in a good way. You are obsessed with kindness. Not a bad thing to be obsessed with. Uh, your goal is implementation of kindness practices into our communities. It seems to be that when we become obsessed with something, anything, whatever it is, there's often a story behind that, how that happened, where did it come from? So can we just begin there? Tell us a little bit how kindness became such an important part of, uh, of your life. Of course. Yeah. So basically it really started back when I had a, a drama teacher in high school. From grade eight to grade 12, I had one of the most remarkable drama teachers that, that I ever had. And so he was really unique and he was really unorthodox. And so he wore these crazy vests. He had custom made brocade vests that looks like, and I don't know if you're Canadian or if you're, you know, UK audience knows Don Cherry, but he's well known in Canada for his really outlandish, crazy vests that look like brocade curtains or something. So he had these vests that were very similar to that. He smoked Benson and Hedges cigarettes right outside the classroom door. So he's super unorthodox. The administration did not love him, but we loved him. He was really different in that he had us all memorize poetry and then learn to juggle and then put it all together and perform in front of our grade eight peers. Like if there is, I don't actually think there's anything more terrifying. So he pushed us to fail or to attempt to fail, or to take risks in such a way that we might fail. And he always told us to fail gloriously, or take the zero. And I think a lot of his metaphors were embedded in his lessons. And he taught us so much about life in these little, these little moments. So he pushed us, but he also had this really soft side to him. So I am not a stranger to trauma in my own life. And he had this almost sixth sense to pick up on when I was going through tough times. So there was this one particular day where he could just read it on my face. I'd gone through a really tough time and he came right up to me and he could never get my name right. So he said, Morgane, and it's Morgan. Morgane, I think you need to go and do some errands. And by this point I was in grade 11 and so I had my driver's license and I took the keys to his vehicle and I literally did a loop around the school parking lot area and it just gave me the opportunity to clear my head in such a way that really no other educator had provided that space for me and I was a really good student I was an A plus student so I never really asked for what I needed he had this way of just showing up for us 
Mm. And I remember when I graduated, I wrote several teachers letters of gratitude, just thanking them for what they had done for me. And of course, he was at the top of my list. And I don't remember what I put in the letter, but I essentially wrote him a big letter, thank you. We stayed in touch and years passed, we would go for coffee and one day he came down with cancer. We had grown so close and it was a real blow for me. Mm. And I remember him one day calling me up and asking me to come over because he wasn't able to leave. He was, he was too weak to leave his home. And I walked into his house and his lovely wife opened the door to me and led me down the hallway to where he would be. And as I walked down that hallway, I looked and there on the hallway framed was the letter that I had written so many years before. And I just had never realized that I had the potential to make an impact. I knew he had made an impact on me. I just didn't know that that could be the soul. And as a student. And I think that's when the seed was planted for the power of kindness. I think the impact that he had on my life was huge. And then learning in turn that I could have that impact. So that's kind of how it started in a nutshell. <laughs> that is so beautiful. <laughs> I mean, we are recording on an early Sunday, Saturday morning, and I'm like, oh, I got to hold back the tears on that one. I won't hold them back. They're coming in right now. That is such a beautiful story for taking something which might be interpreted as so simplistic, writing a note to say thank you for someone who truly impacted your life. We think how often we just verbally say thank you to someone, or we think about how often we sort of dismiss when someone even says thank you to us. And we go, oh, no problem, no problem, right? But it really is an important thing as an expression when it comes to um, kindness day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's funny, actually, because I am an educator now, and I would say a lot of that traces back to educators like him who sort of forged the path, right? And so I currently teach grade one. So I teach five to seven-year-olds, depending on where they are on their journey. And we actually do compliment circles. And so part of that is intentionally providing the space and the time to explore kindness and compliments. So first of all, framing them. And I think as a society, we tend to be okay at giving compliments. Uh, so often what I'll do is I'll actually set it up and say, well, there's like three different types of compliments that you can give. And I, I draw a mountain and at the bottom, it's kind of the easy compliment, which is the physical compliment. And so often we're really good at that and we can do that with strangers. And we've got the next one, which is something that is more rooted in an action. So, oh, I noticed that you're really good at soccer. And then the next one, the top tier is more about character. So I saw the way that you pulled someone over and you included them in your game. So obviously I'm modeling that all the time. What's neat about compliment circles is that it enables children to internalize that whole framework. And then they're able to use that in their life. And then the flip side of it, and this is what we're not really good at, is receiving the compliment. So we actually model how do you receive a compliment with grace and with generosity too, because it's, it's hard to give a meaningful compliment. It can take a lot of courage actually, which is sort of counterintuitive, but I think especially adults, when it comes to the stuff beyond the physical, it is hard to give a meaningful compliment to someone. And then it's really hard to accept it. Many people, like you said, they just brush it off, Teresa. And then at the end of the day, if you really want to feel those oxytocin hormones of goodness that really bring you together as a community, 
like accept the compliment and do it with grace and say thank you. And I really appreciate you pointing that out. And it's not always easy. So that's something that I care about as well. I love that idea. I love the the, the picture you painted there with the mountain. I'm I'm intrigued to, to think, well, with, with kids that age, I imagine going all the way up that mountain is, is quite easy and, and very comfortable them to do it. But I imagine the older the person gets, the more difficult it is to, to get to the second stage, definitely the third stage. I don't know if you've had that experience when you've been out in the community doing the same sort of thing. Does it does it sit as well with, with the different ages? What an interesting question. Yeah, so actually what I do, I do professional development seminars for educators and I love working with adults. I love teaching kids, but I love working with adults because I think oftentimes adults need it more than the kids do, even that intentional practice. And, and I think they use the word kindness, but I think it almost needs a rebrand. It's really about intentional perspective taking, empathy building, and the way that we act when you're with people in such a way. And so I actually do pretty much with every session, I do some form of shout outs. And so what that looks like is essentially, if I'm working with a staff that knows each other well, because sometimes it's a mishmash of people who have come to my sessions, but if I work with a staff who knows each other well, I often have them pick names, like put their names into a hat and then pick names from a hat and they have to think of something meaningful to say about someone else on a post-it or on a poster mm -hmm. and they have to do it fairly publicly. And so that means that they are really digging up, like what is something powerful about this person that I've noticed that I'd like to recognize them for? And then we post them and we put them up and it's pretty neat to see all these colorful post-its which are really positive messaging about our colleagues. As much as we say that we're building these positive cultures, I think people forget that we all need validation mm -hmm. and we all need to be seen. And I think what the, the shout outs really provide is the opportunity to see one another and to, to shout out those strengths. And I think that's a really important piece of powerful work culture is knowing that people see your strengths. At the beginning of practices like this, kind of like anything else that is a newly adopted practice, it does take the repetition to gain some one confidence, but sometimes they think to the, the language. If it's outside of your comfort zone, okay, the practice will help you to gain the courage and confidence in doing. And I think secondary to that, sometimes our lack of confidence is I don't really know how to phrase what I what it is that I want to say. I don't really have the language for it yet, but we need that practice of receiving so we hear it from other people and are able to reflect and go, oh, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> and then on the other side of it, be able to get really good at putting the words together that express what it is that we really want to from our heart. I rarely think that expressions of kindness are from our head. They're a little bit more from, from our heart. It takes a little bit of practice to do that. Is there sort of like, yeah, it kind of takes people like, you know, 20 minutes and they're rolling into it. Or it's something that people really need, you know, like four weeks. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's really interesting is I don't even know if it's a timeline thing. I think it comes back and I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Brene Brown and really guides a lot of my practice in terms, I mean, I don't actually know her. I wish I did. I wish she was my friend, but, <laughs> but, she, but her work really guides my practice and her research because I think it's more a vulnerability thing. I think it's when we have established a culture that really fosters a sense of belonging and psychological safety, then I think we take the leap. Then I think we go, it's okay if we get it wrong. Because I think what you're saying is we need a roadmap, we need a clear sort of framework that's right. Mm -hmm. But then you know what? It's there's no right way to do it. And so I think 
really what we need is just a safe culture that enables us to feel like, you know what, even if I screw it up or if I say it wrong, that there's still going to be someone on the other side who gets the intention. And I think that's that generous assumption that we walk around with in a safe culture. But if we have our walls up and our guard up and we feel unsafe psychologically, which we may not even be able to put our finger on, but it's that uneasiness when we step over the threshold of our workplace, truly that's where it comes from. And I think, I think it comes from the leadership, which isn't always that position. It's an earned position. So what I've really learned in my work is that leadership is something that you can step into whether you are at the bottom tier of your work hierarchy or whether you're at the top. And it comes from the way that you walk through your interactions day to day. It's the posture that you have, the professionalism, and then it's really exemplifying the things that you wish to see. In my workplace, we do a lot with the kids around modeling that. We do this kindness ninjas thing, which sounds very sort of um, juvenile and and cute, but it's really walking through those intentional steps of, of what does kindness mean? How do we push it out in such a way that it ripples out? And you know what I've seen is I've had educational assistants come to me and say, the fact that your students put treats in the staff room and put these lovely notes out and thanked us for our work, that stayed with me all weekend. The notes that appreciated the way that I do supervision, that meant so much to me because I haven't had that kind of recognition for a long time. And so I really think it's about the way that we walk through and that we, we exemplify that ourselves. I love this term, generous assumptions. I think that is a brilliant way to express if we lead with that, then no mm -hmm. matter how eloquently someone phrases a thank you or wants to demonstrate their kindness, we'll be able to read it from them. Because you know, there's a lot of things that we want to teach in the classroom or in the workplace around belonging, around community, around psychological safety. And yeah. in that, there can be this barrier to, before I can practice it or before I can do it, I need to get it just perfectly. And basically what you're saying here is, no, it's, it's not about being perfect. It's just about doing it. Your intention is spot on if your environment is leading with these generous assumptions that everyone is operating with the best of intentions, then perfection is not necessary. See, I've had a big battle with perfectionism myself. I think I'm like a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> so I think it takes to no one, right? And I think it's like, I get it. I get the need for a roadmap. I've searched for one my whole life, I think. And I read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, uh, Big Magic. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but essentially she deep dives into creativity and she talks a lot about perfectionism and she talks about it. She has this analogy, which I just think is so brilliant. And she says, perfectionism is fear, but it's like haute couture fear. It's the kind of fear that makes you think that you want it around. What it often does is it prevents you from living your life in your intended way. And so often fear will chime in when you're going to try something hard and will say, oh no, but what if you do it wrong? Or what if other people don't like it? Or what if you insult people? And I think that that whole thing around, well, name it, accept that fear is part of the journey. Fear mm -hmm. is designed to help you be in an elevated state if you're being chased by a cougar or a tiger or something, right? Like it is, it has purpose. So you want to thank it for what it does. But then you also, what she does, what Elizabeth Gilbert does is she says, thank you for your services, but they're not needed here for this particular activity. <laughs> and then 
you can be here, but you can't drive the car and you can't play with the music dial and you can just sit in the back seat. So you can be here if things go mm -hmm. sideways, but you're not driving the car. And I just love that because I think if you can kind of release yourself from the grip of fear, then you can kind of step into the stuff that you actually want to do. And when I think about the podcast, when I think about my interactions with Seth Bowden, who has become a mentor that I actually know, mm -hmm. <laughs> not like Renee Brown, where I don't know her, but I wish I did. I think a lot of it was because fear wasn't ruling that part of my life. So the imposter syndrome around, I've never done a podcast before. I'm not a radio person. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Kind of went, yeah, okay, but I'm going to try. And back to Mr. Graham, I'm going to try it. And then I'm going to potentially fail. But what's on the other side of that is potentially something that's really powerful. So I love how you describe that. I mean, this is, in the way that Teresa and I do, obviously fear is something that we come up against quite a lot. And for me, you know, it obviously used to have an effect on me, but now if I'm doing an activity and I don't feel fear, then I feel like, oh, is this really what I should be doing? And then when I do see it, it's more like a, it's not a red light, it's not stop, it's not run the other way, it's a green light. It's like jump forward, go for it. Like you just said, doing the podcast, learning to be, be on video, that sort of thing. I was like, oh, I'm not, not too sure about doing this. I know I'll just do a video interview series that will just really propel me forward and give me all that genuine experience it doesn't matter what happens it doesn't matter what the outcome is but I know that I'll grow and I'll, I'll uh, improve so you know I love the uh, being in the car and not touching the, the mm -hmm. dials uh, mm -hmm. analogy there perfect <laughs> so you mentioned your podcast there can you tell us a bit about that how does that differ from uh, than the work that you do with, uh, with with the kids or in the community yeah so it was kind of, it was funny it was kind of like the um the hero's journey and I, I was sort of reticent to even do it. Like it came up, first of all, there was sort of a call out from teacher thing, but we need more. Like I would go and do these sessions and then they'd be like, yeah, but like back to roadmaps, like uh, we need a roadmap. And so, and I think they sort of understood the science, but I think they wanted more. And I, I kind of wanted more too. I was like, I wanted to talk to experts about the science of kindness, the science of creating safe cultures, the science of workplace culture. And so I, I started doing a lot of reading. So I, I read, you know, Simon Sinek's work. I read Adam Grant, obviously Brene Brown, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Pink, who, I mean, all of these people do a lot around motivation in the workplace and, and in schools. Chip and Dan Heath do a lovely job with their Power of Moments and a bunch of other books. And so it really came out of that work. I'm wanting to deep dive into, into that with professionals who, who work on, on workplace culture and create elements of belonging in schools. When I talk about the resistance, I remember looking at Seth Godin's blog and kind of thinking I, I was a big fan of Tim Ferriss and I thought, oh, it was so fun to interview people. And it was just kind of this like fleeting thought that, that popped through my head. And then, and then sure enough, Seth Godin said, well, we're, we're doing this fellowship. And if you want to podcast, you know, this may not be the one and only answer. You're not going to get famous, but give it a shot. And so I was hemming and hawing and I finally did it and, uh, and joined the podcast fellowship. And I think it was the most powerful thing I ever did because I got this amazing community out of it who I'm still connected to. Um, I wound up actually coaching for Seth Godin a number of times and he's done, I think this, this has been his fourth round of the fellowship. And so I've been into like a bit in, involved with that, which has been really cool. So pulling other people up in their podcast journey. I think it just gave me a voice. I've always been kind of a listener. And I loved asking questions, but it gave me a platform to have these really cool, I feel like conversations with people who probably otherwise wouldn't have given me the time of day. 
and I've gotten probably over a hundred now interviews with really amazing people. Like I've had people from Simon Sinek's organization, Start With Why. I've talked with some really amazing authors, TED, TED Talkers. I've had Seth Godin on the show. And so it's been this incredible, essentially, venue through which I can connect with people. It's been wonderful. And people can listen in and really start to learn about things like the science of kindness, because that's kind of like an oxymoron, the science of kindness. What do you mean science behind kindness? So I would love to explore that maybe yeah. in the most simplistic way possible or whatever way you generally would describe what is the science behind kindness? Because you mentioned yeah. something extremely important to workplace culture is creating psychological safety, which drives innovation, creativity, connection, belonging, like it drives all those kinds of things that everybody wants right now, but is really struggling with. So maybe what they're missing is a smidgen of kindness. Beautiful. So essentially, I mean, there's these two main drivers of hormones in our bodies. And so quite often we're living in this stress state. And so when we're stressed, we have this constant flow of cortisol going through our body. So it's kind of that like jolt of electricity that we get, that adrenaline that we get. There's cortisol that kind of wakes us up so that we're ready to do the fight, flight, or freeze, which is our pre, essentially there's three stages of our brain. So there's the lizard brain, based, there's the paleomammalian brain, which is that mouse brain, if we talk about evolution, and then there's the prefrontal cortex. So when we think about the way that cortisol interacts with our brain, it launches us into that lizard brain, which is we're literally just what do we do? We freeze, we fight, or we flight. The problem with cortisol is that it's not meant to be in our bodies for a long period of time. It's meant to be in our bodies for short bursts because the likelihood of actually seeing a bear in nature, which is really what this was designed for, was not that likely. Like we were only supposed to see this once in a while. The problem is we are stressed in meetings, we are stressed with deadlines, we are stressed with our families, we're not getting sleep. So cortisol is constantly going through our body. What cortisol prevents our body from doing is feeling that love hormone. Um, we are unable to access the prefrontal cortex, our ability to connect with others, empathy, logical reasoning, all of that stuff is out the window when we are in stress. And so when we think about bringing kindness in, there is this amazing hormone called oxytocin. And it's this beautiful hormone that many people now know, but it's the love hormone. It's the hormone that courses through your body when you first see your newborn baby. It's the same hormone that when you see that video on YouTube, you know, it's that constant stream of all these lovely things that strangers are doing for one another. And it kind of reframes your whole faith in humanity. That feeling is really governed by that, that hormone oxytocin. And so what the magical thing is about oxytocin is that it can directly counteract and block cortisol. It has the capacity to bring our stress response down. And so when I thought about this, I was like, this is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. We have capacity to bring our stress levels down in a time when we are overloaded with stress. And where does it come from? It comes from our ability to connect again with that generous, kind, intentional kindness and so that became a big focus for me. I thought, man, if we could bring that into our schools, that would be pretty powerful. And we know that it takes about 21 days to create a habit, the foundation of a habit. And so what if we were to create a program where kids, 
specifically, but also adults, could practice intentional kindness or have the opportunity to practice it for 21 days, long enough to really create a habit around it. And then what would happen to their bodies? Like they would probably become less stressed and a little happier. And so I've been doing this for the past few years. I've been going into schools and it's been pretty incredible. So we've been doing a lot of that. And to see the transformation with the culture in a classroom is pretty phenomenal. And then I think about how do they feel as a community when everyone is kind of working toward this goal? It's, it's incredible. And I've had adults join me on the challenge. I've done it for adults as well. And I have lots of private messages from people saying, you know, I stopped by the bakery and I got some cookies and wrote my wife a note and it put a smile on her face. And for a week after, it's like we were in a really great place. And so those types of things, it's like, it's not huge, but it's when you're feeling stressed to have somebody else come in and really think about you intentionally is powerful and it doesn't happen a lot because we can't access that empathy spot when we are stressed too. And so many of us are. So it's about intentionally going beyond that to change. I don't know if that makes sense. but It totally makes sense. So what I found really interesting about that aspect of our hormonal sort of influences and releases is that when I practice kindness, not only is it going to help someone else to release oxytocin when they receive this, releases oxytocin for them, helps their stress management. It also helps me, like the practice of kindness, releases oxytocin in my system and helps my stress management. It's like it's a double whammy in this practice of kindness. Yes, well, and we know that we have these mirror neurons which enable us to, if someone is laughing in front of you, we do this exercise often in my sessions. So Sean Acor came up with this great, experiment but essentially what i instruct people to do is to pair up and they look at each other in the eyes and one person's job is to essentially maintain the most neutral expression that they can and so they have to do that and then the other partner's job is to smile the most genuine heartfelt giant smile that they can right into their eyes and it is nearly impossible so we do that for seven seconds it's nearly impossible unless you're like a sociopath to not (laughs) smile or laugh when that happens and so that's basically the exemplification of our mirror neurons at work and so that when we see kindness or when we see somebody doing something generous for somebody else that we that actually it's our mirror neurons kicking in and we essentially experience that exact feeling of generosity as though it was happening to ourselves. And so we talk about this as like this reciprocal thing where, yes, you feel good as the giver, you get that dose of oxytocin, the receiver gets it. But if someone else is observing, they also get it. So that's where you can have this real transformative culture piece, which, which is huge for a workplace. I think if there's a lot of that flying around, you're, you're going to do better. You're going to, again, come back to this creating a safe space, a safe culture psychologically, that that's a big part of it is are people generally acting with intention to look out for one another and to have perspective on each other's situations and to act generously, essentially. And I've seen it. I think that's the thing is I've seen that feeling. I've seen the transformation. You know, I've gone into schools where I've gotten the email where, oh, we'd love to have you in. And then I get the follow-up email just before I go, by the way, we're sort of a divided staff. Uh, There's about 30 staff members. And can you bring us together? And I'm like, okay. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's a tall order. But I think when I'm able to set the tone as a leader of the session, it's pretty powerful to see the shift where people are kind of, you know, hands are folded and legs are crossed. And then by the end, there are people sharing some things that you're like, 
oh, this has been hard for you. And they're able to be a little bit more open. And um, it's a pretty beautiful thing to see people open up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, for people who are uh, listening to this on the audio, I just want to say that when you were talking about the mirroring your neurons, we were all beaming or we were all smiling. We were all having that same thing. I don't think I've smiled so much on, on a podcast before. So <laughs> for that, um, I wanted to say just a quickly like... Um, it's not a very big jump from kindness to happiness. And I think mm -hmm. that's why I find this such an important topic is to get from the kindness to the happiness. And then that can, you know, can lead to whatever else. But before, before we run out of time, I just really wanted to ask you about your 21 day challenge, because mm -hmm. I think that's a really uh, easy thing for people who are listening to run with and, and get an idea and, and do. Sure. Yes. So I've actually on my website, smallactbigimpact.com, you can go right on there. And I have uh, different versions, actually. I have some videos that I've pre-recorded. Uh, I also on my LinkedIn, I did um, a series of daily videos, which gave you essentially just a few ideas for ways that you could be kind every day. And so like I said, the 21 Day Kindness Challenge was sort of born out of this desire to bring in the kindness and the happiness uh, science and research around decreasing our cortisol and then increasing the oxytocin levels through those daily kind acts. Because we know that even if we do something for two minutes a day, that it can dramatically boost our happiness level. And Sean Acor does a lot of research around this in his book. And so this does tie into our overall happiness. We know that depression and anxiety and suicide rates are through the roof right now. We know that people are in stress. So how can we combat that? To do this over 21 days, obviously, is not the answer. I think we don't stop after that point, but essentially we create these habits that can, that can really guide us in our life forevermore. And so if you go to my website, there, there is more information about it. There are videos that you can click on that can guide you through your practice. There are, if you are an educator or you're a parent, you can actually access, we have a Kindness Ninjas Challenge, which is essentially small acts of kindness in a school setting. And then, um, like I said, I also did on my Instagram and my LinkedIn, I had videos and I have that saved on my stories. So if you wanted to start your own workplace, 21 day kindness challenge that you could do that with colleagues. Sometimes it's as simple as just practicing gratitude too. So um, I think about the many of the challenges are centered around other people, but there's also this self-care piece, which I think we haven't really talked a lot about, but this is a really important thing. And we talk often about the fact that you cannot give from a good place where you're doing it without the intention of recompense or without the hope to have somebody kind of recognize you. You can't do that unless your cup is filled. And mm -hmm. so how do you fill your own cup? And I think that's a really important part right now where what are you doing to lift yourself up? And I know that the research right now is saying that gratitude practice is a really important piece in lifting our own selves up, our own sense of happiness. And so I really encourage people to engage in some kind of gratitude practice. And that can look like doing it through your senses, which I often recommend to people because it's a powerful thing. So like, if you see like right now, I'm just going to show you very quickly. We have the most beautiful sunrise. I don't know if you can see oh, that. Yes. Most beautiful sunrise. So what I would do right now is I would stand outside and I would just let it kind of wash over me and go what do I see right now and almost take like a mental sensory picture of that what do I see what's the feeling on my skin what do I smell maybe that fresh air what am I hearing are there birds you know like all of the senses tune in and I know that like Tony Robbins does a lot of this work 
Mm-hmm. And what that does is it anchors that memory, that beautiful memory, whether it's your kids playing, whether it's you being with a friend at lunch, it anchors that memory in your brain so that when you're thinking back on like, what is something I'm gr- grateful for? You're grateful for that moment and you're able to conjure it like as though you were there. And you know, your brain has this capacity. If we anchor those memories so strongly in our senses, it's almost as though we were living it when we relive it, right? So it's a really powerful way to fill our own cup, so that gratitude piece. I think the idea also, I just wanna share like just a couple of activities, hopefully that would that's okay. Yes. But I think about this letter that I wrote to Mr. Graham way back, my drama teacher. I often get people to write a letter to their bottom hands. And so I have this person in my life who, um, her name is Dr. Jody Carrington and she's wrote, written a book recently. She's from Calgary and Alberta in Canada. And she, her book is blowing up because it is rooted in the science of trauma and how do we get out of trauma? How do we support each other in trauma? How do we support our children? How do we support our educators who are working with kids in trauma and getting that secondary trauma? And so she talks about who are our bottom hands and our bottom hands are the people who hold us up when we're down. And they're the people who essentially push us when we're feeling good and we need that boost. And so she, she often says like, recognize those bottom hands in your life. There's like three to five people that, or even just one who mean a lot to you and write them a letter and better yet, read the letter out loud to them in front of them and see what that does for you and see what that does for them. And maybe at first they're going to be like, what's happening to you? Have you like, <laughs> is something going on? <laughs> Are you dying? Yes. At the end of the day though, what it does to your happiness level is it boosts it way high. And then it's like, you create this bond with that person. And mm-hmm. like I said, I think we all need validation. And I think to know that you are making a difference in someone's life is pretty powerful. So give someone that gift of knowing that they're impacting you. And it could be your boss, it could be your sister, it could be your husband, your wife, anybody, right? And I think it's powerful. I would like to share a story because this whole sensory experience of gratitude is insanely powerful. One of the things that I greatly connected with my sense of smell that always brought me tremendous joy was going over to my grandparents' house on Sundays and there was always a pot of pasta sauce. And that was an overwhelming smell when you came into the house. But as soon as the combination of going to my grandparents' house on Sunday, because the events that would take place, all of the people that would be there did nothing short of elevate you to the highest levels of happiness and joy possible. Now to this day, when I smell pasta sauce, I immediately feel joy. So it's a really strong, you're right, it's very strong to connect our physical sensations with our emotional experiences in the practice of gratitude, because that, it will trigger it every single time, but it also really connects us closely to how our bodies feel when we're experiencing things like joy and gratitude, which really helps with our emotional awareness as well. Totally, totally. What a cool thing. Isn't that, that amazing? Um, yeah, I loved it. That was so good. So, Morgan, we have this hashtag, not anymore. And it's also yeah. a question. Okay. We can't not pay attention to kindness as a leading indicator towards greater happiness. Mm. We can't not pay attention to kindness and the practical ways that you shared with us that we can grow our capacity to be kind, whether we're in the workplace, in our schools, in our communities, in our families, there's so many different ways that we can do this. Mm-hmm. So to help our listeners start doing something differently, in your mm-hmm. opinion, what would be the first 
thing you would recommend they start doing today? Wow, beautiful question. The first thing, I'm gonna cheat and I think there's three. So one, make sure your own cup and that your practice around yourself is solid. Because I think even if you're not there yet, I think that's a really important piece, but it doesn't stop there. Mm -hmm. The second piece is that when you're interacting with other people, I think what would be really interesting to ask yourself would be to ask, what is the story I'm telling myself about what is happening? Because I think that's where you question your perspective. And I think quite often conflicts arise out of mistaken perspectives and mistaken sense of intention. So what I mean by that is if we're, if we're in a conversation with somebody and something rubs us the wrong way, we often don't question what's the story I'm telling about that interaction. We just go, Oh my, I cannot believe that that person just said that to me. And then you go and tell somebody else and it turns into this thing. I know. Yeah, I know. She said that to me too. And then it turns into this big thing. Now you're gossiping about somebody. Now it's this big thing that's gone beyond that interaction. Now you're telling a bigger story about it. Question your story about your interactions, because I think that can help you to sort of dig deeper into maybe there's something else going on or maybe you're seeing it through your own filter and that intention to hurt you or the intention to rub you the wrong way or to manipulate you. Quite often we have teachers who say, oh my gosh, they are so manipulative and they are, you know, about kids. And I go, mm, maybe they're just protecting themselves and it comes out that way, right? So it's about just questioning the intention, questioning the story. Yeah, double checking. Am I making a generous yeah. assumption or That's right. otherwise? That's right. And sometimes, you know what, sometimes people have a hard time and they are, it's not a generous intention, yeah. but I would say probably nine times out of 10, people aren't even aware of the way they come across, you know? Yes, exactly. If we, if our tendency is to tell a much more negative story, just to tell the rest of the stories would be That's right. explore it. And that'll help you to break that habit and pattern. Yeah. Well, there's so much that I learned. I've wrote down, I think, two or three different books that you have read, <laughs> you've read that you recommended. I love having a book list. Doing yes. this series has definitely made it longer, <laughs> but I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing also just the spirit of kindness. I can only imagine how many individuals when listening will benefit, which will increase the ripple impact of kindness throughout our community. So thank you for that. To our audience, if you want more from Morgan, and why wouldn't you? You can <laughs> on LinkedIn, on Facebook, uh, the Small Act Big Impact 21 Days, Twitter, S-A-B-I 21 Days, Instagram at Small Act Big Impact. We're going to put all of them in the description because there's a lot of different ways that Morgan is available and what she's working on is also available. Thank so, you, Tree. Thank you, Reese. Yes. So the fun is not over yet. We are about to get into our rapid fire Q&A. <laughs> awesome. We've got 10 statements. Two choices for each. Do your best to pick one, although some of our guests cheat. <laughs> Are you ready? Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, manager or leader? Leader. Active or reactive? Active. Black and white or gray? Mm, gray. Optimist or realist? Optimist for sure. Yeah. Canada or England? Mm, Canada. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Heart or head? Heart for sure. Beautiful. Empathy or assertiveness? 
Hmm. I think I would default for empathy. Yeah. Introvert or extrovert? I used to think extrovert. I think introvert posing as an extrovert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, logical or emotional? Emotional. Mm -hmm. Innovation or process? Innovation. Ah, thanks for having the fun with us. Your passion, your connection to your truth, like finding this path and harnessing its power. It's very inspiring for us. Um, Reese and I are both early in our journey as entrepreneurs and following our purpose and our truth as well. So thank you for being a beacon and a guiding light for that. To our listeners, thanks for being part of this episode of TNTESQ. And until next time, keep challenging the status quo. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you. And I just had a little takeaway. We were talking to someone yesterday, um, Kevin Monroe. I don't know if you know him or not. Uh, we were talking about how to live an extraordinary life. We tried to break it down. And um, a lot of people might hear that and think, oh, that's such a big thing to try and achieve. We broke it down into just, just doing a little extra thing each day, each day, and that could turn into something extraordinary. And I think it's exactly the same thing with kindness. I think people will think, oh, how can I adopt kindness into my life? How can I change this thing? And it, all it takes is a little thing, like you said, mm -hmm. writing a note, saying thank you, writing a letter. Um, yeah. Present with someone when you, when you were talking to them. You know, so I think that was a, a really good takeaway that I've had from this. So thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed you being on the show. <laughs> Hey, thanks for joining us on this episode of TNT ESQ with myself, Teresa Quinlan, and my co-host, Reese Thomas. It was a pleasure having you stop in and listen. Until next time, keep challenging the status quo.